Hello everybody, welcome back. I promised you there was going to be another episode inside of six months. This is the Unafraid Podcast and I'm your host, Jay Lavelle. Um, it's really good to be back with you today. Um, we had a really good episode last time and so coming off of that I'm, I'm pretty psyched. Although today is a kind of stressful day to me. Um, Right now it's November 19th as we're recording this, and tomorrow is the Transgender Day of Remembrance, and uh, a group that I that I work with has been organizing a big candlelight vigil um, tomorrow at a park, and it is just really, really stressful with so many moving pieces, trying to get everything to work right and make sure there aren't any uh, catastrophes. Um, and adding to that that every day um, just about we're, we're having another name added to our list um, of people who have been killed this year is uh, is tough you know it, it's stressful it's it's really sad it's it's heavy so um, you know whatever you're doing out there to, to remember all of our, our fallen friends you know we, we appreciate that but enough of the the really sad stuff um, <laughs> we're, we're gonna we're gonna to move on to something that's hopefully a little bit more lighthearted, but you know we haven't planned it out at all, so who knows where this conversation's gonna go? We have a brand new guest today, Gabe Morales. Gabe, how are you? I'm doing well, Jay. Um, thank you so much for what you're gonna be doing tomorrow on behalf of uh, Transgender Awareness Day. I um, am constantly reminded about. Uh, the struggles that transgender individuals have to face in this world. And um, I'm most grateful to Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Garcia for having started a movement that was co-opted by cisgendered gay men mostly. And we kind of forgot that transgenders actually started our Stonewall movement for us. So that's what I'm going to give to your uh, Transgender Awareness Day. Oh. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I really do. And, you know, it's a, you know, pride can, can really be for all of us in the, in the queer community. And I, I think it's, it's a beautiful thing that so many of us celebrate, but it's, it is good to, good to know where you came from. It's good to know your roots and, and not forget that. So. Right. But, I think we oftentimes do forget that, um, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are still forgotten to a certain extent in this whole movement. And uh, it shows in just the levels in which uh, society has sort of grown to accept cisgendered gay men more so than transgender individuals and that the fight for transgender acceptance still is occurring and happening. Well, and especially amongst transgender people of, of color. And, um, you know, talking about them being forgotten, uh, Marsha and Sylvia, it's, you know, if looking at the, the list of names that we're going to be reading tomorrow, many, many of them are black transgender women. And, you know, they're they're the most susceptible to violence in, in this uh, country and around the world. And they're the most often forgotten. And, yeah, so you're right. We've we we cannot forget that. Right. So thank you so much for being under a level of duress because it just shows how committed you are to the movement. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, so so now that we've we we've gone down the to the sadness right away uh, before before we've inter- even introduced ourselves really. Um, Gabe, can you tell me a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I'm Gabe Morales. Uh, I uh, am a stand-up comedian here and actor based in New York City. I was originally born in San Francisco, California. Um, grew up in San Francisco. Um, in between uh, the Mission District and the Castro neighborhood on 18th Street by Dolores Park. Uh, So I always joke about having seen, uh, having to grow up going to church on Sunday sometimes and seeing men in leather chaps coming home, um, which was kind of a regular sight for me to see. 
uh, and a wonderful sight to see as a young gay boy um, trying to figure out this world. And uh, I've been in New York now for over 20 years. Um, I love being an actor and a performer and a stand-up comedian. And uh, yeah, I'm also um, somewhat of a, I'm involved in politics and in uh, a lot of uh, forms of um, keeping democracy alive to as much extent as I can. Wow. Well, you, you kind of gave us a lot just, just right there. I mean, first of all, I wish that I could pull off chaps of any kind. Um, I sadly cannot. I might be able to pull off like a very loose fitting skirt of some kind, but wow, leather chaps, that's pretty intense. Yeah, no, leather chaps. I've never worn leather chaps. I might be of the uh, leather skirt um, <laughs> <laughs> as well. Chaps, I don't know if I could pull off. But, uh, you know, I'm an actor. Maybe I could. <laughs> well, well, okay, so speaking of leather pants and, and actors, my, my wife and I just got back from a, a little vacation to the Florida to the Florida Keys, which wasn't the, the best, surprisingly, but the in the in the little camper that we were staying in because it was kind of like a camping vacation they had uh they had kind of two channels that were always playing one was um always action movies and the other one was either friends or harry potter and we we happened to see the episode of friends where ross gets stuck in a pair of tight-fitting leather pants um and so now i i see why i saw that episode it was it was like uh it was like fate because you know, it knew I was going to be talking about tight-fitting leather pants for some reason. Um, <laughs> all right, so there's my dorkiness. I am over 40 years old, so I do remember when Friends actually was a thing. <laughs> so I, I really am that old. Uh, I'm over 40 as well, and I remember when Friends was supposed to be a thing because I've never actually watched an entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm I'm pretty sure I was married to someone who was uh, fairly obsessed with it at the time. But I do admit I I watched it. It was uh yeah it was it was fairly popular for a while there. But uh, uh, it was a very popular show, and I um I tend to not um watch very popular things for some reason. If it's very popular, I really feel like I have no reason to watch it. Oh, are are you more into like the the super artsy stuff? Whether that's kind of obscure. I like anything that's sort of obscure, hidden, or um, oftentimes uh, ignored or denied. Okay, interesting. I like it. Well, you are in the right place because we are a very small show and I don't think that we're hidden. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, you're at the point where you could say that, that we're pretty obscure. So I, I like that, uh, you know, hopefully more people will be able to, to check us out in the future. But, you know, right now we have a, you know, a really, a small audience, but it, it's the same audience keep, that keeps coming back. And I, and I kind of love that. It, it feels like almost when I, get behind this microphone that it's like my my little friends out there and and i don't know there's something it may sound dorky but I, I really dig that no i think it's great to recognize one's audience and um you know it, once you build something they like they say they will come yeah so if you just uh keep building and building and building the audience will come well i hope so i hope so so you went from San Francisco, and I think that's the place that's supposed to be like the the best weather in the country, isn't it? Um, to some, it is. It, I I feel like San Francisco is perpetually um, stuck somewhere between late spring and early fall, and uh, we get about one week of really really nice sunny weather uh, in October, um, which uh, they like to call the Indian summer. Okay. Um, and uh, I think it depends on what kind of if you like um, perpetual sort of fall and late spring type weather, then San Francisco's great. San Francisco's great during the day because it can be really sunny um, uh, in parts of San Francisco. And then in other parts, it can be really cloudy and cool. So there's there tends to be a lot of different um, microclimates in and around the Bay Area. So depending on where you are. Um, 
I feel like there's other parts of the Bay Area that are nicer in terms of weather, but in terms of population, they kind of tend to devolve into uh, a less liberal type of people that you would Okay. Well, in, you know, I'm in Michigan, and so I, we really don't have a good concept of the size of California. So I'm, I'm thinking the Bay Area, you know, that's like the size of one of our cities. And I, that's really not, not the case at all, I don't think. It's probably about the size of our state. Um, it so, might be because California is pretty, California's pretty big, and California sometimes gets uh, stereotyped as having uh, Los Angeles and Southern California type weather throughout the entire state. But the Bay Area has its own very, for some reason, the Bay Area, because it's such a special, unique place, it has its own special and unique microclimate. And uh, it, 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 the weather in San Francisco and in the Bay Area is completely different than the northernmost part of California and the southern parts of California. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But, and, and so you went, uh, you went from there. Is is now California is not the Sunshine State, is that is that is that Florida? No, California is the uh, the Sunshine State is Florida, and California is the Golden State. The Golden State. Okay, so you went from the Golden State to kind of like the concrete state over there in uh, in New York, where and I think that you have a lot of the same kind of weather that we do here in Michigan, where you get you get moderate summers and then kind of a lot of fall and winter, right? Yes. And um, when I first got here, it had a much more pronounced uh, four season aspect. Uh, now it's sort of kind of turned into uh, somewhat of a shorter summer with sort of yesterday was like 70 degrees. Um in November, uh, there's been like two Thanksgivings, I think, recently in recent times that have been extremely, extremely warm. So it was just difficult to feel like it was Thanksgiving on the East Coast because you were at a friend's house roasting like the turkey in the oven. Uh, so yeah, we definitely uh, get a little, we get a different kind of weather pattern here than in California. Okay. And were you there? You said you've been there for 20 years. Were you there when the towers came down or did did that come before you? No, I was here for September 11th. I uh I was here I was uh, an undergrad uh at City College studying theater at the time. And uh I remember we had a class that day. And uh the strange thing about that is I remember I remember the most the tiniest of details. And the strange thing about September 11th was the day before there was a man who was trying to fly into the Statue of Liberty with a helicopter or something. There was some kind of incident where there was a man who was who was trying to fly for some reason, fly a helicopter into the Statue of Liberty or near the Statue of Liberty. And they had stopped him. And then. um I remember the following day, uh, it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous, it reminded me of a, of a gorgeous, gorgeous San Francisco, California type day where the sky was this very, very, very gorgeous blue. And it was, there was not one cloud to be found in the sky. And it was just, it just felt like one of those beautiful days in California that we call earthquake weather days, oh, where wow. it's very warm. I mean, there's just this, it's not, they're called earthquake weather days for whatever, I don't know what reason, but there's usually never earthquakes on those days. I guess it's just in San Francisco when there's nice weather, they just, it's so um, non-expectant to be nice that uh, they call it an earthquake weather day. But it just was a beautiful, beautiful day on September 11th. And the weather was just beautiful the the temperature of the day you could tell it was going to be a warm weather day just because the temperature in the morning was already uh warm so it was just going to get warmer and then um i remember hearing on the news 
that um, somebody had crashed into the towers. And I thought it was the guy from the day before. I was like, oh, God, the guy from the day before didn't succeed with flying into the Statue of Liberty. So I guess he tried to fly into the World Trade Center. And um, I went to school and everybody at school was crying. Um, there was people on the way to school talking about they just crashed into another tower. And I couldn't really make any sense of it because I wasn't getting any information yet. And when I got to my class, everyone was huddled around this radio listening to what was happening and people were in tears. And uh, when I got to class is when it finally hit me. And I, I just said, I'm going to go back home. I don't need to be here. I'm just going to I live close enough to my campus to be able to go back to my apartment. And uh, I found my friends and uh, we went and ordered uh, Mexican food and sat in front of the TV and ate tacos and nachos all day. Wow. Wow. I think that for people our age, I, I think that most of us can remember in pretty vivid detail exactly what we were doing, you know, and you know, they always say that, you know, when if you watch um, shows that are that are looking back and covering these events that and it, it's just such a it's such a, a day that is seared into all of our minds that, yeah, I, 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 I don't think we'll ever lose those those memories. You know, you were you were at school and then you you went and you you got your friends and you guys were eating Mexican and, and watching the news. And I was at work at a. Uh, on a, on a horse farm and we were building some kind of addition you know i worked for a, a builder and you know he had heard on on the radio that somebody crashed into the the world trade center so we we went into the customer's house and we sat there and, and watched the news as the the second plane hit and you know i'll never forget those it, it it still wasn't real because watching it on the news you know you didn't realize okay you know this many people just you know blinked out of existence and not quickly um, but yeah, okay. Well, you know, and and I'm sorry, guys. We kind of kind of took a, a left turn there, but um, but yeah, you know, I'm I, I guess I'm I'm having a a really emotional week with you know this this event coming up, and so I'm I'm just thinking about a lot, and it's it's tough for me to to think about people that have, that have suffered and died for for no reason at all. So, but thank you for sharing your experience. No, thank you, Jay, for bringing it up. I oftentimes, um, because of the impact, I think that I uh, I don't revisit it that often, um, only because uh, I just remember the fault, the ensuing days, and I think it was more so the ensuing days that like really made it make sense because I wouldn't. I would go out on my bike and I would I would only ride my bike. I used to ride my bike all over Manhattan, and. After that, I would only ride my bike to a certain place and you could still see sort of remnants of smoke and stuff downtown. And so I never really went downtown uh, to go witness it or to see anything like that other than what I had seen on TV. But um, yeah, I really rarely revisit that uh, day only because it was so it was it was surreal in so many ways. Yeah. Very, very heavy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so tell me about being an actor and a and a stand up comic. That's you know I've I've seen a couple of your uh, your videos on YouTube, uh, and you're you're very funny. I I especially enjoyed uh, your bit about how uh, you know in the last two years every white man has become the most oppressed person in the world. Something like that. That was pretty good. <laughs> isn't it funny isn't it funny how you have to beg for oppression sometimes um i uh thank you so much for thinking that i'm a funny person uh, i uh, appreciate that um i think sometimes i don't think of myself as being that funny so it's always good to i think as a comedian that's one of the things that you struggle most with because it's a subjective art and um now with social media so many people have opinions that, um, or so many people have a, everyone has had all of these opinions all their lives and throughout history. But now with social media, so many people can catalog their opinion. And um, 
I thank you for watching the videos and thinking I'm funny. That video, uh, that specific bit, uh, I, I like to form my bits um, based out of either observational, um, political, or autobiographical experiences. And um, that bit was formed uh, as a result of um, examining, I was at a, um, I was flying somewhere and there were, I felt like there was more animals in the, um, in, at the gate waiting to board the plane than there were human beings. And uh, there, while I don't necessarily, while I don't object to there being, um, you know, an emotional support uh, pet, I, I really wanted to point um, out the fact that there's so many people who take advantage of things for their own selfish needs and so it makes people who actually need, it makes people who are like blind individuals who actually need an emotional support pet to guide them, I can understand. But now all of a sudden, I mean, I guess maybe it just speaks to the mental health issues in this country that everybody seemed to have an emotional support pet and all of us that, and everyone that needed an emotional support pet was in the economy class. And Nobody in first class ever has an emotional support pet because they've always been working at destroying our lives. Mm -hmm. So um, I try to tie in certain relevant things and current events and try to, you know, bring out the funny in them. And, you know, people in first class, they can have a they could for all intents and purposes, because there's so much room in first class, they can have an emotional support elephant <laughs> with them. And uh you know, so just making jokes about those kinds of things that, um, you know, I think are funny and, you know, speak to what is currently happening in the world um, are are my favorite things for my, my favorite reasons for doing stand up. And uh, it's also just um, stand up is great because anybody can become a stand up comedian. It really doesn't. Stand-up comedians, I think people do stand-up com comedy a disservice by saying it's the hardest thing to ever do. And I think people try to make it seem like it's the hardest thing to ever do because it involves public speaking and uh, it just involves you being um, in front of an audience for a long period or, you know, short to long periods of time to make them laugh. But I think that there's a lot of other things in the world that are harder than stand-up comedy. And, um, you know, a lot of people go into stand-up comedy for a variety of different reasons. And uh, I really, really love to pursue it just for the fact of um, exposing things and uh, making people more aware of the politics uh, that we're all sort of governed by at some point and in some way, shape, or form. Well, and I think that that's, uh, you, you know, at least for, for us at, at home that, that aren't doing it, I think that's always my, my favorite type of, of comedy, you know, when you're when you're taking things from the real world and, and you're, you know, spinning it in, into a little bit of humor. And, you know, because you you do laugh at it, but you do also think about it a little bit too. You're like, oh, yeah, that is that is kind of a messed up thing that's going on right now. And, and, and you, you see a lot of that, or, or at least I do. Cause my, my uh, wife watches a lot of, um, you know, kind of YouTube and Facebook videos that, you know, have uh, short clips of stand up comedians on there. And, and so I think a lot of people are, are really nailing that. Um, and, and so I think that's a good thing, but it, it also reminds me, um, I have a, and I don't think it's irrational, I have a fear of stand-up comedians, and this dates back, uh, let's see, my youngest is uh, about 13 now, so it dates back about, you know, 13, 14 years for me, when my wife worked for a comedy booking agency. Um, she wrote contracts for them. Okay. 
And when your wife works for a comedy booking agency, all of a sudden um, she gets all sorts of tickets to comedy shows all around the area. And she wants to go, of course. Um, and when your wife wants to go to a show, you go to the show as well. And so something I learned about comedy shows is they are not a one-sided experience. It's not like going and seeing a movie or a play. If you go and you happen to be in the kind of the the orbit of the, the comedian up there and you happen to look like the most insecure person in the room, well, damn it, they're going to say something to you. They're going to include you in their jokes. And it was absolutely terrifying. It was so scary because I did not like being called out in front of other people. And this happened three or four times with different comedians. And so... I just, I, I think I was traumatized by this experience. So I, I just think of these uh, stand-up comedians as almost like Godzilla characters. They're terrifying to me. <laughs> uh, that's actually, uh, that's one of the beauties of stand-up is that stand-up is the one art form that actually incorporates the audience as part of the act. Uh, if you go see classical music, if you go see... Um, a play, if you go see a movie, all of those are all of those art forms have what they would call a fourth wall, which um, separates the audience from the art that's taking place. It's uh, those art forms are sort of designed as though you are now allowed a window into seeing that art form. Stand up is different in that it allows you to participate in it or forces you to participate in it because you, the audience is producing the laughter that uh, requires the stand-up comedian to continue performing. If there's no reaction from the audience, most of the times uh, they call that bombing in stand-up and you're not you're bombing because the stand-up the stand-up comedian is bombing because there's no connection between them and the audience and no laughter is being produced. Uh, with that in mind, stand-up comedians, um, after most stand-up comedians have spent many, many years on stage uh, performing their craft, perfecting their craft and performing their, their bits and uh, gaining a sense of self on stage. And the minute we look out, the minute we, we're oftentimes um, in the area when the show's happening. So sometimes we pay attention. Some com some comedians pay attention to what has happened before. Some comedians do not. And so sometimes they've paid. Sometimes they've already looked at the audience before they've gone up. Sometimes a host has already spoken about an individual or, um, you know. Stand-up comedians are very observational people. And so the minute they get on stage, they can see the audience and the audience is sort of revealed to you because you're participating in the show as well. So even though you, you're, you're an audience member, you're participating in the show. And if you're close enough to the stand-up comics view or you know, line of sight, They'll be, they can determine so many different things based off of body language and, you know, build off of that and um, make fun of, I've oftentimes, be, that, this is why stand-up comedians don't like to perform for other stand-up comedians. Stand-up comedians can't really, you, you're never going to see stand-up comedian, stand, a stand-up comedy show, uh, for other stand-up comedians is really just going to be an open mic because comedians just sit around and really don't listen to one another. And so stand-up comedians need an audience to perform in order to uh, either make fun of people uh, or make fun or make fun of whatever situations that they've created into bits. And the better you get at stand-up, the better it is to be able to read an audience and um, make poke, I would say poke fun at like them and, uh, you know, 
that's really one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like to sit in the first rows of shows. Uh, because it's expected that the people in the first few rows are always going to be made fun of, I tend to not my for my I tend to not go with what is expected. So I tend unless somebody in the first front rows says or does something, I tend to not pick on the people in the first front rows. I usually like to go a little further in depth to the people who think that they're a little safer in the back areas and um, make fun of them because You're just confirming confirming everything I, I already thought about stand up comedians. Yeah, we're we're horrible people. We're not great. We're not. I don't know why people think that we're just wonderful, amazing people. We're. Uh, I. I. I know a lot of stand-up comedians by default, and uh, most of us are horrible people. <laughs> uh, well, all of that, all of that makes perfect sense now because my wife always wants to sit up front, and of course, she's not getting picked on, so it was. It was always me, and I. I kind of had to go along with it because otherwise I, I feel like oh it's just going to get worse if i don't laugh about this i i mean there are things that you can do as a person um i'm not going to tell you the things that you can do uh only because um uh they might be done wrong and so when you implement them like you might further dig your own hole with the comedian um but you know, there are there's reasons why people get picked on more regularly than others. I actually used to be a person who used to get picked on at stand up comedy shows before I was a comedian. And I thought that that was the I thought that was the most amazing thing because I used to sit there and wonder, like, how does this person know that they can make that they can poke fun of me like this? And I, 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 I it intrigued me so much that uh, I had to figure it out and become a stand-up comedian so you too could use the dark magic i understand yeah yeah there's a there's a there's a power of observation that stand-up comedians uh hone throughout the years and uh you can just tell like you know you can always just tell who has sort of the sort of curmudgeonly look in the audience or who's not having a good time um and stand-up comedy really does give the audience actually a lot more power than they think they have. Uh, because you, the audience does not have to laugh. And uh, I think the, most of the times that the audience laughs when, some, when one individual is being poked uh, for fun, is they laugh, they're laughing because they're the ones who are not being poked fun with. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So they're just uh, sort of they're sort of cheering on the bully for not bullying them and picking somebody else. In a sort of in a sort of stand up comedy is really, really strange because that's one of the reasons why stand up comedy to me has changed so much, because stand up comedy used to really be about punching up. And I don't know. I really don't want to take the time to research it and pinpoint when stand up comedy took a turn to punching down and uh, punching down on people who are, you know, in so many different ways being punched at from different angles that um, now comedy, um, I think with, I think it's just a symptom of what's happening in the world with um, more diversity happening. The people who, once thought that they were supposed to be the only ones who had a voice are having a hard time having to share space with um, individuals who uh, come from so many different communities. And I think that's just across the board. It isn't just in stand-up. Um, if you look at so many different forms of places where human beings uh, gather from you know the House of Representatives to stand-up comedy shows um, to concerts or different things, um, there's just really been a, a a concerted effort, sort of, to um, perpetuate this idea that cisgendered straight men really need to be the only ones who have a voice. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing that. Uh... 
we're seeing that very, very loud and clear now. It seems, at least over the past couple of years, it's become, you know, just more out there in the open where it's like, okay, we're not even hiding it anymore. Um, well, they've it, never been hiding it as a thing. I think we just sort of um, felt as though things were going to change as uh, human beings sort of tend to when they want to grow and evolve. But when you have a group of individuals who is wholeheartedly uh, committed to not growing or evolving, it makes that process all the more difficult because you have the individuals who have historically been in power are the ones who are very, very adamant about not wanting to change or grow. And so they want to continue being teenage little boys while the rest of the world is saying, no, we want to grow. We want you to grow up. We want to evolve. We want you to change. We want you to actually go from adolescence to adulthood, young man. And they're very adamant about, uh, I mean, I was watching something about um, last night, um, the House of Representatives was trying to vote on the Build Back Better Act. And uh, Kevin McCarthy had like some really lengthy, lengthy speech on the House floor about nothing. And if you listen to him speak, and if you listen to all these cisgendered straight men speak, they really say nothing. They really don't say anything outside of, we don't want change to happen. And we're gonna say whatever it is we have to, to make sure that change does not happen. And um, it's happening everywhere. Like it's happening in stand-up comedy, it's happening in, you know, a variety of different places and um it sometimes really uh you know going back to the sadness that is surrounds this world it's sometimes disheartening to have to live through that still well i i got a question for you you know and in my experience with this comes comes with authors. I have many many friends who are authors and uh, I've always been a voracious reader and there have been a lot of authors throughout history, you know, written history, that will use their work to kind of point out um, social problems or to, you know, predict maybe social problems and, and try to say, hey, this is, this is something that has to change. And people still do that today. Do you feel like through writing or through stand-up comedy or, or, or acting or, or playwrights, anything like that, that through the arts that we can get through to people? Or are we just kind of preaching to the choir and, and that's not really going to help the big picture? I think it used to work that way where um, art used to be able to um, inform and... Uh, present the world to people for what it was. And I think, I, I, you know, I hate to have to say this, but I really think that social media has ruined and destroyed the world in which we live in. And social media functions in such a way that anything can, any opinion that you sort of formulate can be presented as, it's, as though it's a fact. And because that, because of that sort of, re because social media sort of dictates everybody's life, and I've been guilty of reading certain things and saying, oh, I guess this is true, only to like, you know, I guess, quote unquote, do my own research, which is the new thing that people do now online and look up stuff and find out that in fact, it's not true. But people don't necessarily take that extra step to critically think anymore. People just take the information that is sort of given to them and accept that as fact rather than uh, take the time to actually conduct some kind of thorough examination of what they're being told. And um, it's really unfortunate that social media has kind of controlled has that kind of level of control because it's sort of diminished uh, what art used to do and has taken over in terms of how our lives 
um, are controlled by a variety of different forces that now share these opinions and get these opinions out. And um, it's one of the reasons why I really feel like uh, so much of what I have to do as a performer now is social media based and why I fight against having to do all the things that are expected of performers today because we're expected as artists to legitimize social media. And I look at social media in a completely different context. Well, and I, I have been very guilty of this. Um, I actually <laughs> joked, joked around with it before when somebody asked where, where I got my news. And I'm like, you know, if it if it's two sentences long and it comes in the form of a meme, that must be news now, right? I mean, <laughs> it's well, way easier to, to spend two and a half seconds reading, um, you know, reading a picture somebody posts rather than uh, reading a legitimate article. And, and I, I think that that's become a problem all over this country and maybe all over the world. I, I don't know, but um, I, I think it's all over the world, but I think you're not the only one. I think, you know, um, I'm guilty of that as well. And the thing that also happens is that actually newsworthy sites that do provide you with news and information, they come with paywalls. Oh yeah. So yep. You only get access to three actual articles and then after you've read those three articles, then you're expected to pay to read the news where most of the other, uh, I wouldn't even call them news sites, but most of the other, I would call them more propaganda sites. All of the propaganda sites that you know work at uh, selling disinformation, none of them have a paywall. So you have free reign to read through all that stuff. And of course, when you're on the internet, you're not going to want to subscribe to something to read something. You're just, you're just there to facilitate whatever sort of boredom you have and you're scrolling. And if you want to, if you have the option versus, uh, versus subscribing to uh, an actual news source and continue reading a propaganda site for free, um, most people are going to opt for the free propaganda site yeah. than uh, the legitimate news source. Yep, and it's it's so backwards. It's so so not right. You know, it it really isn't. And you know, even God, even even watching the news on TV, which is you know kind of where my parents went to get their facts because they didn't have the the internet. It uh, you know different news stations are also using their own propaganda and it's it's just so damn confusing now well and that's a part of the uh that's a watching the news now is really really difficult like any any news channel is um because they're in the they're in the uh the news is sort of like now has turned into sort of a soap opera in which we're there to sort of um participate by being what by being sold uh ads in a sense and so you just sit like the way in, it really to me it just really goes back to the way in which social media has uh focused us to um or developed this idea within us that we only need to react to things that make us viscerally angry or incite some kind of emotion and because social media has developed that level of um you know human human brains they you can train a brain to do certain things and the the smaller and smaller amount of time that you know we get uh by spending you know a, a tweet can only be a certain amount of of, of a, a certain length uh, certain videos um, on all these social media sites, they can only be, what, 30 seconds, 60 seconds long. So you're sort of developing people to only have an attention span that is very limited. And so a lot of times, the only things that you can respond to in that time is sort of fear and anger. And, or just really silly stuff that isn't really funny. 
Um, I find that a lot of times, a lot of my friends, because I'm a comedian, they'll send me a lot of stuff that they think is really funny. And um, I'll watch it and I'm like, this person was not doing anything that's remotely funny. They, what did they do? Like, what did they do? And so I think so many different forms of uh, news and TV have been um, influenced, I guess, in a, in a sense by social media. And so the news now, um, the news is no, I mean, I remember when the news and newspapers were how people got their, inform, their, their, their news. And, you know, I remember seeing my father reading a newspaper and my mother would read the newspaper and then we would watch certain news shows and you would get the news. And now, um, you know, everything is breaking news. Like, I mean, there was a time and a place when breaking news was actually breaking news. Now everything has been turned into breaking news. If someone gets hit on the sidewalk, it's breaking news. Um, so there's this way in which the uh, the media is also, at, I mean, the media is a part of, social media and the media are somewhat related to one another because they're forms of media. So they would eventually influence one another and sort of take from one another to be able to still affect the way our lives. Well, you know, and that's a, that's a dark idea for all of us, you know, and for everyone out there, I, I apologize. This idea that social media has trained us to have shorter attention spans that will only react to the most provocative things, the, the clickbait things. And that's just, damn it. It's, it just sucks. I mean, it really it, sucks. It really, it really does. And it really makes like, you know, it, it, it um, it, 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 I, I love that your podcast is called Unafraid because um, there's just uh, a, a way in which the world used to operate that uh, most people were um, had a level of fear, but not in the ways that we do today. Like now in the way that we have fear today, it's sort of as though everything is a doom and gloom thing. And so to have like, um, you know, to have like to have to live in that world is just really, really a murky place to be. And I feel like I struggle with that every day as a stand up comedian and um, having to make an art form that makes people laugh, knowing that so many of us have just come out of this two year pandemic and that we're sort of still within some kind of pandemic realm we haven't really been able to open up everything and things are opening up and that we're still within this 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 situation that is still taking place and being like being lighthearted is kind of a difficult thing to do like having this conversation with you like everything seems to like i'm trying to be as lighthearted as possible but <laughs> every um every Thing that sort of is happening now just doesn't have everything that's happening now just carries a certain weight to it that kind of uh, diminishes the lightheartedness that we used to have. Well, and I think you you hit it right on the head there. And I think that you know, and and I suffer from depression, and many many people do. And I think that for people that are susceptible uh, to depression, the last couple of years have been they've just been hell, and there there hasn't been. A whole lot of lightheartedness. I think. I think the the amount of comedy I've watched has dropped dramatically. And instead, you're on your phone doom scrolling or watching the most depressing crap possible. Watching Tiger King, which, oh my God, I can't even go into Tiger King. But I know, haven't. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to watch like an episodic or any series on Netflix for in the last two years. It's funny you should bring up Tiger King because that kind of stuff, because it sort of elicited some kind of provocative response, is what works now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just hours and hours of just shit. And I'm, I'm sorry, Tiger <laughs> King producer. I I watched the show, okay? I contributed. But yeah, you know, we just, we're not in a in a good place mentally. And it's going to take us 
a while to recover. And I think that, and, and okay, and I have talked about this before, and I, I feel really, really guilty about this because I am a, a white person and I, I should have been much better. But, you know, when, when we first started seeing a lot of coverage um, about the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and started really hearing and reading more about the things that black people still are going through in this country, I was, I was completely floored. I, I was completely shocked. And it, and it was like, how, how could I have been blind for, you know, all in my four decades? How could I have been blind for four decades? And so, you know, you have this happening on top of a pandemic, on top of we don't know where we can get reliable news or information on top of, you know, who's sitting in the uh, in the president's throne right now, um, making everything worse. And yeah, it's it's not lighthearted. You're right. There, there's nothing freaking lighthearted about this. No, and that's why um, it's interesting. I I love astrology as well as astrology is one of my sort of um, like I I look at astrology like I think of things in terms of. Uh, there's a hard science, there's a soft science, there's hard cheeses, and there's soft cheeses. Um, and there's also firm cheeses. So I think of astrology as a firm science. It's not necessarily a hard science, it's not necessarily a soft science, but it's a firm enough science to be considered to me a science. And um, the planets do certain things. And the most interesting thing came to my uh I have a friend who's a really, really, really just brilliant and uh, uh, astrologer. And um, we met the other day and he pointed out to me that um, everyone has a birth chart and countries have a birth chart. And uh, most people don't live long enough to ever have Pluto return back to the place that it was when you were born because it takes 248 years for that to happen so the only time the only the only entities that really have what they would call a pluto returns are countries or nations or or institutions or Anything that sort of is uh, either a hierarchy, uh, governmental thing, or anything that, anything basically that can last longer than 248 years. Human be a human being will never experience a Pluto returns. The 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 most significant return that a human being will experience is probably a Saturn returns, which is every 28 years, and human beings have a. Uh, you know, if you're into astrology, you know what a Saturn returns may be, can do, can can uh, can do for your life. A Pluto returns is a really, really significant thing because Pluto is the planet that governs transformation, regeneration, um, ends of endings of things, and the beginnings of things, and Pluto rules over the sign of Scorpio, which is the sign that uh, is the most regenerative and the most uh, transformative sign that exists in the uh, in the zodiac. And in February of 2022, Pluto is going to be back in the same place that it was when this country was found when this country was born on July 4th, 1776. So with a Pluto, this is why we're seeing the things that we're seeing, where everything is being exposed and everything that was somewhat hidden is now front and center for us to see because Pluto has returned back. Pluto is on its way back to where it was when, it, when this country was first started. And it's asking us to examine the things that were started at that point. And where are we now? And so when you look at people who like you, who say, I never really saw these things. I never really got to, I, I never really saw these things. It's all 
sort of cosmic and happening in terms of this exposure, you know, the whole Me Too movement, the um, the whole awareness of transgender pronouns and non-binary and that the, that there's, you know, what that I, I think the biggest thing that I see it in is sort of the cisgendered straight men who are fighting so adamantly for their right to be the most superior individual on uh, in this country. Um, because when Pluto return, Pluto's going to be returning. Pluto was in Capricorn, I guess, when the country was in, on July 4th, 1776. So Capricorn is a Capricorn is a sign that loves power and authority, which obviously is very befitting of the country known as the United States. And so there's a real significant thing that can happen because um, either either our country is going to come to an end or a hierarchy is coming to an end. And we're all experiencing all these things as a result of our, this is, this is also the United States very first Pluto returns because it's only been in this, this orbit is just, uh, it takes 200, Pluto's so far away from the sun, it takes so long for it to make a complete revolution around the entire zodiac. So I like to think that like, you know, those planets are there for a reason and they kind of guide and govern us in so many different ways. And um, everything that we're, we're, everything that's being exposed to us right now is a direct result to me of this Pluto returns. And not that many people ever talk about a Pluto returns because we talk about Mercury retrogrades, we talk about Saturn returns, we talk about our birthday, our sun sign, our rising sign, because those are tangible things that actually occur within our own human existence. But a Pluto returns is very significant in terms of what it can do for actual countries. So it kind of makes sense that our country, you know, once I found out that this whole Pluto return thing was actually taking place, it kind of makes sense to me that um, this country is sort of in the place that it's in because we're really at a pivotal place in terms of this country's birth chart in that Pluto is going to be back in the place that it was. And Pluto kind of likes to see what's going on in the last 248 years since it was here. And so it's now coming, now everything that has been a direct result of sort of, I mean, we're not going to, I'm not going to lie here. This country was sort of designed to benefit white men. And, you know, that's what, that's what framed the Constitution and that's what framed the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, they had to add different things to the Constitution to sort of give the rest of us rights and um, allow us to vote and allow us to, you know, participate in this uh, quote unquote democracy. So now that um, that is happening, that's the one thing that sort of lets me. Um, sort of take everything that's happening, not necessarily with a grain of salt, but that it sort of makes sense to me that this is happening now because this is this country's very first Pluto returns. And well, I gotta say, you kinda you kind of blew my mind with that. And I think it's that's an that's an amazing thing. Um especially for someone who doesn't know much about astrology. And I think that whatever whatever change may be brewing so to speak that i think that that we're we're long overdue for it and you know whether it's a you know catastrophic change whether you know it's a political change and you know i think that it's it's time for it to come and uh i, I think that i think that a lot of people are hoping for change anyway and uh, yeah, so I you know I really appreciate you sharing that. Like I said it's not something I know anything about, so I I think that's that's really cool. And and somehow we've managed to talk ourselves all the way to the end of this episode already. Already? Yeah, I, I know, and I I feel like Man, we just I'm got. So to... sorry. I'm so sorry. I thought I was gonna have nothing to talk about, Jay. We thought we were gonna look at each other and say nothing. 
<laughs> well, you know, yeah, you know, I I think that's the the most fun. And for those of you listening, we really had zero plan going into this at all. Um, but I think it was a I think it was a, a really fun and and kind of enlightening uh, conversation, don't you? Yes, and I hope your viewers um, are able to make it to the end to find out about Pluto Returns and uh, examine that and kind of uh, sit with it and uh, are able to understand, you know, not only their own birth charts, but the fact that this country has its own birth chart as well and the significance of a Pluto Returns. Um, I think uh, I think it's, you know, with the way that we started our conversation and then it sort of kind of uh, came to a, um, to me, it sort of came, resolved itself by uh, bringing up, I, I felt like I had to bring up Pluto Returns for some reason. Well, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really glad you did because you know that's that's a really cool tidbit that now you know me and anyone else listening can can go and do some research. Just make sure your research is more than just memes, because um, we, we've we've already talked about that today. Yes, um, please, more than just memes. <laughs> well, you know, do you do you have anything you want to promote or plug or anything like that before we go? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I do part. I, you know, as much as I, um, rail against social media, I still do participate on social media. I'm on, I'm on Instagram under Morales Gabe, M-O-R-A-L-E-S-G-A-B-E. I'm also on Instagram, uh, as Gabe Morales. Um, and you know, they all identify me as a stand-up comedian. So, you, you know, there's a ton of Gabe Moraleses now in the world. I used to think I was the only one. But, um, you know, diversity and inclusion. So there's a ton of us now. Um, but um, uh, I think I'm the only Gabe Morales who's an actual stand-up comedian still. Like, I'm the only Gabe Morales. So if you want to give me a follow or, you know, give me some tidbits of information that you got from this uh, wonderful conversation with Jay, um, shoot me a message or follow me on Twitter. That'll be awesome. Well, in guys thank you so much for for joining me again everyone you know it's it's always great to to talk with you all and so uh i am going to continue preparing for the transgender day of remembrance and uh, i hope that you all out there are safe and um if you don't feel like you're safe make sure that you contact someone a friend a professional even me and I can help you get in contact with, with anyone you need to. But uh, until next time, stay safe and stay strong. <laughs>